Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to read. I'm going to read two texts for us, uh, just to enter our time in, and then we're going to. Um, we'll probably be bouncing around a little bit the next couple weeks. So Matthew one, starting in verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then jump down to verse eighteen, on that same page. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's pray. Father, we're going to be looking at a text today that is often skipped over, and Lord, it's to our shame, it's to my shame that I skip over these texts. So Lord, give us grace to hear what you have from from your word for us that we would be attentive to your word, that we would pay, pay mind to what you've said. God, and then we would, by your spirit and for your glory, walk in a way that's pleasing unto you. Help us now, we ask, we pray, by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage I read from Matthew 1.18 is very normal. It'd be a very normal text to read this morning. But as I was thinking about this, Matthew is the next book we're going to be going to after Job. So I was like, we, we can't jump ahead. We can't jump 18 verses ahead. It'd be very easy to be like, well, you know that big genealogy at the front end of Matthew? Let's just skip it. It's easy. Let's just go over it. But as I was thinking about this, like, we, we cannot do that with Scripture. Even, even a text that is, is just this person was this person's dad, and they gave birth to this person, because they matter. And we're not going to go through each name, but I want to really highlight a few of them. So the next two weeks, we're going to do an Advent series that I'm calling Genealogies and Advent. And this week is called New Beginnings. Next week, we're going to look at uh, that. So we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ today, and then we're going to look at the son of David, and then son of Abraham the week after that. But I don't know if you remember, maybe maybe you recall, uh, just as an introduction, uh, on July 24th, 2022, or I'm sorry, 2002, 20 years ago, uh, 18 coal miners from the Kew Creek mine in Somerset, do you remember that tragedy where the miners were trapped underground? Uh, the mat- miners accidentally dug into an abandoned mine that basically flooded their mine. They, they, were, they were pushed to a part of the mine that they couldn't get out. They were stuck underground. 
trapped underground. Little resources, little air supply. All they had for food was a lunch pail that was floating around with a still dry corned beef sandwich and a, pep and a bottle of Pepsi. And for four days they sat under, they, they were underground. And I, re I remember I was young at that time, but I remember being like, wow, that, was, that must have been horrible. I'm claustrophobic to begin with. So like dark, small, four-foot spaces, that's terrifying. But I wonder, what do you think would keep people going in a situation like that? And uh, you, there's many answers we could give. We could say, well, they were, maybe some were Christians. They were hoping that God would deliver them. But the answer ultimately is that they were hoping that someone was coming for them. If, if they realized that they had no way out and they were just trapped and everything was lost, they would become very hope, hopeless. Their hope was for rescue. And slowly but surely, if you remember, they finally got a drill to them to where they started drilling and, and soon they could start hearing the drill from the surface. And for four days they sat and they heard the drill and then they stopped hearing it and so they heard hope and then no hope and finally the drill got to them and they were all rescued. Now that story is very, um, it's like a parable of what it means to be a Christian in some ways. That's kind of where the land that we find ourselves, sitting down in a cave, a dark cave, but with hope coming to us, sitting down there with our corned beef sandwich and Pepsi, nothing else, hypothermia setting in, that's kind of very similar to what it's like being a Christian. But we know that hope is coming. So if you're taking notes today, I want you to see this. Since Jesus is the author of the new creation, we must set our hopes on him. And then I want us to unpack that. Since Jesus is the author of the new creation, we must set our hopes on him. And the question those miners, I'm sure, were asking was, is for a while, was, is anyone coming at all? Are they going to make it in time? And as we open up the book of Matthew, I want that story to be in your mind. Because ultimately, that was the story, at some level, the, the feeling of anticipation that the people of Israel had had. For, for hundreds, as we open the book of Matthew, for hundreds of years, there was silence. There was silence. God had made all these promises in the Old Testament. Think about the whole Old Testament. He made these promises, and now there's silence. There's been silence for, since, since the book of Malachi, which was 500 years pri prior to that. And I want you to see silence in the old creation. Silence in the old creation. The ache, I'm calling it the ache of silence. Now, there are two kinds of silence I want us to consider before we jump into Matthew, just to give us, to prime the pump a little bit. Um, the first is the silence from the garden. Silence from the garden, and it's longing for Adam's seed. The silence from the garden is the silence that happened after Adam and Eve were kicked out. And what I mean by that is, that listen to what God says of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Now, we read this text a lot, but here's what he says. He says, I will put enmity, this is to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So, again, we talk about this all the time. But the bruising of the head and the bruising of the heel is, is referencing to Christ that he's going to come and crush death's head and that death will bruise his heel. And this is ultimately found in Christ. But what I want you to see is this would have created a longing in Eve. And you see it. We don't even go two chapters. 
And we see Eve say in Genesis 4, 25-26, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And then at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. I want you to see that there was a great... When, when the people were pushed out of the garden by God, that there was a deafening silence. A deafening silence because they were promised that someone would come and deliver them. And yet, simultaneously, they knew something's wrong. Something's just not okay. Which leads to our second kind of silence. So the silence of creation, the, first, the second is the silence from the exodus. It's the silence from the exodus. And it's a longing for a deliverer. Now, the creation account is not the only time we see a longing for, from silence. If you remember, the people of Israel spent 400 years in captivity in Egypt. They were brutally treated, and around the same time, they would have wondered, likely, is God going to deliver us? Exodus 12, 40 through 41 says, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And so I want you to have those two kind of concepts in your mind as we enter the book of Matthew. The silence from the garden, the silence from the exodus. But now we open up the book of Matthew, and there has been great, great silence for 400 years, longer than that even. Now, I have a question, a cultural reference maybe. Um, have you ever seen the movie The Quiet Place? Anybody ever seen the movie? It's a newer movie. Yes, okay, great. Semi. It's a movie, let me just explain it. It's a movie that has, if you listen to it, it has virtually no music and has virtually no sound and all very, very little talking. And I have never in my life watched a more intense movie. <laughs> it's just, it's so creepy because there's these creatures that are attacking if they hear sound and the whole movie is just don't make a noise, just silence. And what I would argue is that silence creates a great anticipation. The whole movie, I was just on the edge. I'm like, what's going to happen? <laughs> because it's just silent all the time. And silence, what it does is it creates anticipation. I want you to hear the last words, some of the last words spoken from the Old Testament, just to give you more mindset. This is, this is how God closed the Old Testament at some level, as far as before these 400 years. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 is this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So that's the last word, some of the last words that the people have heard. And there was a period right now that we're stepping into that was filled with great silence, great anticipation, which is part of the reason why when the scribes and teachers started hearing Jesus, this is how they responded to him. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. For the first time, they were hearing teaching that was different. <laughs> very, very different because it was from God. Now, when we turn to the book of Matthew, listen to the first words of Matthew, the book of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Now, most people, most modern people who would read that would be like, okay, a genealogy. And then he goes through and names from Abraham to David and then from David to Babylon, and he names off all these people. It's like, what are you doing? What, what's the purpose of this genealogy? One of the Gospels, uh, the Gospel of Luke, starts with Jesus' birth account. The Gospel of John starts with Jesus at the beginning of before time. The Gospel of Mark just starts with Jesus preaching. But here in Matthew, he's like, hey, let me give you all this information on the front end. So maybe it's very, very important that we understand what he means. So what, the question is, what is a genealogy? Well, a genealogy is simply just a list of people who are related. It's, it's you and your grandma, or you and your parents, and then your parents' parents, and your parents' parents' parents. It's very simple. But I want you to see that genealogy, the genealogical hopes in the old creation. So the genealogical hopes in the old creation. And I would call this beauty in the details. And you may wonder, how does a, how does a list of this person gave birth to this person who gave birth to this person, how is that helpful? Well, if we skim over it, which is sometimes appropriate to skim over genealogies, I'm not telling you you're a bad Christian if you don't skim over some of the genealogies in the Bible, but at times we need to really dive in what is being here. And I would argue there's three reasons why we should, why we should see the genealogy. Here's the first, is it creates continuity. There's a continuity or a fulfillment here. Now, Matthew realizes his audience, and he's writing to people who would have understood an Old Testament context, the people he knew who, who knew the significance of certain figures, which is why he writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But I want you to notice every other genealogy in the Scriptures. I'll just give you one, but Genesis 5, 1, this is what it says. This book is of the generations of Adam. Now, I would argue that what Matthew's doing here is he's presenting his gospel account as not just another story, but he's saying, you remember that whole Old Testament? Here's the fulfillment. This is huge. D.A. Carson, he would say it like this, and I think it's very helpful. He says, Matthew's genealogy shows he goes on, he says, shows that Jesus Messiah is truly in the kingly line of David, heir to the messianic promises, and the one who brings divine blessings to, the, to all the nations. Now, this is extremely important. This is extremely important for me and you, because as we go and we present this message of the birth of Jesus Christ, we need to know that it's truthful. We need to know that it's picking up on something. Jesus didn't just drop out of heaven. He came at a certain time, in a certain way, in a certain place. And here, oh, by the way, you think your family's dysfunctional? Go read through his list of dysfunctional family. We're, we're going to look at it just here in a minute. But, so it creates continuity. There's a, there's a fulfillment to it. But more than that, there's also a truthfulness. It's a validation of the facts. So there's a truthfulness a validation of the facts. I once heard a story of a missionary couple who was working in a, in a tribal village. And as they were in the tribal village, they were presenting the message of Christ, and people were very opposed, very resistant to the message. And they couldn't figure out why. They didn't know why they were so opposed. But 
one day they were, they were reading the Gospel of Matthew, I believe it was, and one of the villagers saw this genealogy, and he, he became overjoyed. He, he's like, this is amazing. Because for this tribal man, a genealogy meant that this was real. So apparently these villagers had, had been assuming that this message of Jesus was just a fairy tale. And the moment he saw a genealogy, he said, oh, wait a second, this Jesus is actually flesh and blood. Oh, oh wait a minute, like, he actually came from a person. Like, it, became, it validated something for this man in a way that, like, like, nothing we understand in our own culture, that's what a genealogy is meant to do. It's meant to validate. It's meant to bring a truthfulness to the claim. One author, he said this, he said, it's like a great procession coming down a city street we watch the figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honor, and that's right at the end, which is Jesus Christ. We do not have a Savior who's dropped out of heaven. We have a Savior who came in the fullness of time, who God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So this has many sweeping applications for us. And let me just give you one. So if you're an unbeliever here today, maybe you're like, well, I don't really know about the message of Jesus. I'm not really sure where I stand. I want you to see this genealogy and I want you to consider the significance of it. I want you to consider that this Jesus is not just a fairy tale that has dropped out of heaven somewhere. That this Jesus is truly one who, like we've seen, has been a fulfillment. That it's truthful. That it's validated from Scripture. But, but believers, brothers and sisters, as you find yourself reading the Christmas narrative this year, you're not reading your view on Christmas. You are reading God's view on Christmas, okay? I want you to remember that, and that's very important. You're not just reading a, a way to celebrate Christmas. You are reading the way to celebrate Christmas. You are reading the message of the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the validated continuity of fulfillment that's found in Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing I want us to see, though. It's, it's, it's hyperlinks. And it's basically different paths, or I think I have their uh, connection to the Old Testament. So when you think about hyperlinks, uh, hyperlinks are simply those things that you have on the computer that link you to other different places. So you'll have a document, and then within the document, it'll have these little blue links that will take you a bunch of different places. And each one of these names, Matthew has preloaded with, I would argue, hundreds, maybe thousands of hyperlinks in the Old Testament. You could, you could hover over any one name, double-click, and it would take you somewhere to a story that most of us would be like, wow, I haven't heard that story in a really long time. And I want you to see that these hyperlinks, what they do is they, they validate. And we're, next week, we're going to look at just two of them, which is the son of David and then the son of Abraham. But this week, I want us to look at this, this last piece, which is Jesus... Yeah, so in the, in the verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that Matthew is wanting us to see that Jesus is the author of the new creation. Matthew 1.1 opens in a very eerie way like Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. 
in the beginning, God. And then we hear Matthew 1, 1 open up, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I want you to see, firstly, that it's the advent of hope, that hope has come. I want you to think back to those miners for a second. I used that example at the very beginning, and I want to, you to think back to them. There they are at the bottom of at the bottom of this pit, wondering, is anyone coming for me? And I wonder, what is the similarities between Christians and us and them? So what is, what is their similarities as being miners at the bottom of this cave to us as Christians? Well, here, let me give you a big one. They're still alive, and the Bible says that we were dead. So if you want to think about that example, that is a very telling example of what Jesus has done. He's come and he's rescued us. The big difference is they were alive at the bottom of the pit and we were not. Christmas is not just about another good feeling that's coming toward us. Christmas is not just about whatever the culture around us wants to make it. Christmas is about the advent or the coming of hope. It says in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ. But before we can understand the significance, like I said with those miners, we need to see the corrupted creation. It's vile and sinful, corrupted creation. And the big difference between you and me and all Christians and those miners is they were alive and we were dead. And I want us to look at two different names throughout this genealogy. The first, jump down to verse 3. It says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Now, if you remember, there is a very deep, deep red-colored hyperlink over this name. If you remember, maybe you don't, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. So notice it says, uh, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. So notice, Tamar would be the daughter-in-law of Judah, the name listed just before hers. And there's a very grotesque story from Tamar. That basically Tamar, Tamar was being cheated out of her inheritance. So as a way to get her inheritance, she decides to seduce her father-in-law and get the inheritance in her own way. But I want you to notice that she's included in the line of the Messiah. Okay? Don Carson says this. He says, The kings and princes of this world proudly display their noble pedigrees, their links to dukes and duchesses, presidents and czars, prime ministers and tycoons. But Matthew took pains, great pains, to point out that Jesus the King included in his heritage prostitutes and aliens. I would go a step further and rejects. People that were the scum of the earth. And you, know, you want to know why he included them? Because those are the kind of people that God has come to save. And brothers and sisters, as we read the genealogy, we can't just skip over names like this. You know why? Because we think that Christianity then becomes this thing that we do. 
Christianity is this thing that we, we, be, we, we, we celebrate Christmas in such and such a way. No, Christmas is the celebration that God has revived. He is renewed. He has resurrected dead people. Let me give you another name. Jump down in verse 5 to Rahab. These are people listed in the line of the Messiah. If we sat and looked at each of them, we wouldn't have time. But it says in verse 5, And Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. If you don't notice, pay, pay mind to it. David, verse 6, his, I think, and I think I had this right, his great, 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 great grandmother was a prostitute. Do you know that? Do you remember that story in Joshua 6? Listen to it. Joshua 2, is actually Joshua 2, but it, they talk about it in Joshua 6. Basically, Rahab was, if you remember the story, she was a prostitute who lived in the wall of Jericho. Her, her profession was literally to, to please men and get money from them. That was literally her, her, her profession. But the spies, Joshua sent spies into Jericho, and they came into her house. And she, what she did was she lied to the officials to save the spies. Listen to what it says in Joshua 6, 25. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And, and Joshua will later tell us, and other places will later tell us, it's actually by faith that she did this. And Tamar, it will later tell us that it was by faith that she did what she did. The point of making mention to these, this list of genealogies is to see that the people of God, God's people that, that literally are Jesus' lineage, are not prim and proper. They are a ragtag mishmash of sinners and rebels. I loved what one author said. He said, in any shattered clan, some are drunks, gamblers, wastrels, others are decent folk, perhaps, but lacking in any great skill or asset. These are the people Jesus came to save, then and now. We too have low lives in our family, and we have done things that fit a low life laden family. As we scan this genealogy, and again, I just picked up two names, but we could talk about Solomon, we could talk about Ahaz, we could talk about Manasseh, we could talk about a ton of different names. And in every single one of them, what I want to have in your mind is that not just that they were corrupted, but I need you to see that you also shared in that corruption. The good news of this, this genealogy is that God has come for sinners. God has come at the very end. Notice what it says, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, Joseph the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, is called Christ. That's Messiah. That is Savior in that way. Corrupted creation that is in desperate need of saving. And this genealogy does several things, as I mentioned. But the one, one thing that it does, and one thing we need it to do to us, is that is in order to take up the wonder of Christmas, we need to see, as John Piper would say, the indictment of Christmas. Before Christmas is a wonderful, pleasantry time, it is first a rebuke. It is first saying that you and me, we deserve hell, and we're sinners. 
The wonder of God the Son becoming flesh for sinners. The wonder of Emmanuel, God with us. The wonder of God's love being displayed for sinners first has a movement of you are a sinner. Because if you're not, He didn't come for you. That's not who Christ came for. This genealogy of a ragtag band of misfits stand as a reminder that God can work through unique ways. He did it once, and He'll do it again. And then notice what He picks up in verse, uh, verse 18. He did it once, the unique thing. Listen to what, how Jesus' birth is even presented. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And God does it again. He doesn't, he doesn't just do this for, for, for some weird purpose. He's doing this to show the uniqueness, the utter uniqueness of, of what he's doing for salvation. Here's the second thing it shows us. So the first is corrupted creation, vile and sinful. And here's the utter good news. It's God's faithfulness. And he keeps his word. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, when you hear the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you need to hear over top of that statement a just a beacon of God is faithful. He's done it before. He'll do it again. This genealogy stands here as a reminder that we are not left in our pitiful estate. When God says something, He will do it. This genealogy is evidence that God does exactly what He says He will do. Which is really good news when you consider verse 20 of what He says then. And it says, Joseph, son of David, this is the angel, by, by speaking to Joseph. He says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. God is faithful. He keeps his word. Or as Jesus reminds us later in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from my Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. As we behold the the openings of the book of how God is faithful, we need to keep all these different promises in mind. That even the hairs of your head are numbered. That, That you are of more value than the sparrows. If we even had the time, we could walk through each one of these names, and you could see that these people in this life that were in Jesus' list, like take Ruth, for instance. A homeless person is not even, a homeless person would have had more possessions than Ruth had. And she is listed amongst the names of our Messiah. And it's to remind us that he is faithful. He's not just faithful in some vague, weird sense. He is faithful to you individually. His faithfulness is not to us as a collective necessarily. He is actually faithful to individuals He's faithful to big sinners, and He's faithful to self-righteous sinners. When we see God's past faithfulness, we remember His present faithfulness. 
And one day, brothers and sisters, we look forward to the day that we will no longer need to remember his future faithfulness because we will see it face to face. I want you to see the last point, the hope, the hope of new creation. Now, I said Matthew 1.1 kind of stands as a, this is a new beginning, a new creation is coming. But when you think about what the collective society around us thinks about Christmas, what do you think they think about it? Why do you think they think it's so great? I heard, I heard one singer yesterday say something to the effect of, that it just makes you feel good. It just makes you feel good, real, real deep down inside. Okay, so that's the collective society, but what about you? What do you think Christmas is all about? Brothers and sisters, as we think about Christmas, we must hold tightly to the reality that God has initiated in Jesus Christ the new creation. Christmas is not just about warm and fuzzies. It is about redemption, new redemption, new creation. Just like those miners we saw at the beginning. We are not like those miners in the sense that we were dead. But praise be to God in Jesus Christ that he has made us alive. I would argue that most people, though, and I think the, the way that our hearts are tempted toward to view Christmas is kind of like the rich young ruler when he came to Jesus. Listen to what he said. Verse, uh, this is Matthew 19. This is where we'll, we'll end, end then too. Matthew 19. He says, teacher, comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Would you hear that one more time? Teacher, what good deed must I have to... What, must, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus responds, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And then Jesus proceeds to list off all the commandments, except for one. Do not covet. And he says, the, the, the young man responds to him and he says, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And at this point, it became very, very clear that this man, this young man who came to Jesus, misunderstood entirely what Jesus was here for. He thought it was something that he could, he could do and then be brought in. And what he didn't realize, it was something that was done by the Lord Jesus, and then, then he would enter into. Matthew 19, he goes on, he says, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This young man fundamentally did not understand what Jesus was doing. He didn't understand who he was. He didn't understand who he is, the rich young ruler, didn't understand who he was. He did not understand why Jesus came. And I'm fearful as we just, just look at the way Christians celebrate Christmas. I think it's, it, it, can, it, can be, it can tend toward this. But, but Jesus leaves hope. And he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And there's, there's the heart of it. Is, is this is not something for you to obtain, which is good news. This is not another gift you need to go buy for Christmas. This is something that Matthew's opening us up to that is truly new life. And he goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say this to them. 
He says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Don't miss that. He says, in the new world. Meaning that the reason, the purpose Jesus has come is for new creation. He's not just trying to revive or slap some band-aids on the old creation. He is bringing, the same word used for new creation, is regeneration. He's bringing in, in the regeneration, the new creation, the redeemed creation. Or as Titus would later talk about it. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, that is, came or, or advented, He saved us. Not because of works done in, 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 by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. There it is. There's the peace. That's, that's fundamentally what the rich young ruler missed. That this, is, this is how we are saved. We are not saved by things we do. We're not saved by anything in us. We are saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, as Jesus, since Jesus is the author of this new creation, we must set our hopes on Him. We set our hopes on Him in the past, for past cleansing. We set our hopes on Him for the present renewal and present new creation that is coming. And we set our hopes on him for the final, final and ultimate cleansing. I want to I close us in a, in a way that we see where this is heading. And this is very important. We always close, not every single time, but we always end our hope with what our hope's pointing forward to. Revelation 21, listen, listen to what John says. He says, and he who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. There it is. I am making all things new. Do you want to know what Christmas is about? Behold, He, that is the one seated on the throne, that is Jesus Christ, is making all things new. Someone wants to tell you, ask you, what's Christmas all about? God's making all things new. And he started, praise be to God, in me and you. And then he goes on, and he says, verse 6, And he said to me, it is done. This is Jesus speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Don't, don't miss this, brothers and sisters. When we see the genealogies in the Gospels, this is what we have to have in our mind. Now, we're going to take communion today. And this communion, this bread, the bread and the cup, it's not magical. It's not some special, weird thing that we do. But what it does is it represents our hope as Christians. It, it represents the blood being Jesus' blood and, and the bread being Jesus' body broken for us. As we drink down the juice and as we bite through the bread, we're remembering this hope. We don't just do it. We don't just take communion. Just to, just to, it says that we're to proclaim this, the death of the Lord, until He comes. So this is the end. This is what we're hoping for, is we're hoping for the day that all things will be made new. 
So if we could have uh, Tony and uh, Brandon, if you could come forward too for uh, uh, communion.